Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. State legislatures have made little progress in the last decade in diversifying their ranks, even though the makeup of the communities lawmakers represent have changed significantly. In February, Political published a data-heavy project examining this phenomenon entitled Why State Legislatures Are Still Very White and Very Male. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Today, we're joined by three of the people behind Politico's data-heavy project looking at state legislatures. Managing Editor Angela Greiling Keene, Texas Correspondent Renuka Ryasum, and Senior News Applications Developer Alan James Vestal. Welcome to It's All Journalism, Angela, Renuka, and Alan. Great to be here. I'm really excited to dig into the work behind the project, but first, why don't you each introduce yourselves and share a little bit about, you know, your career in journalism and, you know, how you ended up working with Politico. Angela, let's start with you. Sure. I'm Angela Greiling Keen, and I'm a managing editor at Politico. So the teams that I oversee include our state-based teams. So Politico has reporters in seven states, including um, Renuka, who's with us today from Texas. So we cover state capitals, and obviously there's been a lot of attention on diversity or lack thereof in many parts of society in this past year. It's something that I've long considered important in my career in journalism. I spent some time as president of the National Press Club, worked on diversity there, particularly gender diversity. And I think it's obviously an important thing for us to highlight whenever we can in the work that we do here at Politico. So one of our missions is to cover power centers, which of course include state legislatures. So we wanted to see what sorts of people are in those power centers and decided to take a data-based approach to doing that. Okay. Hey, Renuka, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Renuka Rice. I'm based in El Paso, Texas, and I cover, I like to say cover the South for Politico. And I, I got my start really, my first real journalism job was at the Austin American Statesman in Austin, Texas. And after that, I ended up in D.C. and then Berlin for six years, but decided I wanted to move back to Texas because I thought it's a great story. It's a fascinating place and there's a lot of good journalism to be done here. And like Angela, I think, you know, I feel like there are these power centers outside of Washington and I'm happy to be a part of bringing some attention to what's happening outside of D.C. and some of these other places around the country, including Texas. And Alan, how about you? I'm Alan James Vessel. I'm a senior newsroom developer here at Politico. I started my career in newsrooms in Wisconsin and then Texas, and I joined the staff at Politico about the middle of uh, 2019. So I've been here for going on two years. I generally work on kind of a, a mix of data reporting and then also just doing a lot of kind of project coordination and kind of management around our election results as well, because that's also effectively a a full-time job here at Politico is tracking elections and uh, voting in them. So, you know, this is something that, you know, after all of the, you know, just massive amounts of of work in, uh, you know, elections and, and voting changes due to COVID in 2020, I was able to 
this was one of the first stories that I was able to really focus in on to get back to that kind of root of data reporting that has been kind of the constant throughout my career. So I know Angela touched a little bit on this, uh, the idea of the focus on, on diversity and in government. You know, how did the idea for this particular project come about? We launched a project called The 50 late last summer. And the idea behind that is to really look at governing outside of Washington. So both at the state capital level, as well as at the mayoral level in cities, we realized that as the country was starting to figure out post-pandemic, although at that point, post-pandemic still felt a long way off, that a lot of the decisions were being made and were going to be made for some time to come outside of Washington. So at the state and local levels. So the 50 was born out of that thinking. So once we started the 50, we started thinking about what might we look at as part of the 50 looking at states and cities. So I was curious about state legislatures. Uh, when you look at them, you know, it's, it's fairly obvious that they're not as diverse as the country. So it was something that I was curious about. A little bit of personal history. My mother was a state legislator. She's retired now, but she spent part of her career recruiting women to run and always told me how much more difficult it was to get female candidates to run than male candidates. So I had a bit of personal background on this topic, but I was really curious to see what data existed now that proved to be a little bit hard to find. And Alan, I'm sure can talk more about that. But I was also curious once we found the data to see what it said, and then also to draw some conclusions about if legislatures aren't representative of the states that they're in, what does that mean for the people who are being governed? And I think the, a lot of local reporters out there, you know, have an understanding of what their their particular legislature, their particular particular city council, the makeup of that, the political makeup of that. But you know, here we are a few days. After, you know, the Georgia's legislature and the Georgia governor signed a, a bill into law that, you know, a lot of people around the country are really concerned about. And it, it's, it's really kind of demonstrates how things can come up in the in the state legislatures that they can have a huge impact on, you know, the news on the stories and, and basically the daily lives of everybody. So where did you look to get the data for this project? So I guess I can start talking about that. And then, you know, Renu, if you want to, to chime in or Angela, you know, this is something that I know we had a couple different people, editors, and I think some reporters looking at, we knew through one of our other editors, I think primarily Teresa Wiltz, who had done some work on this in the past, that the National Conference of State Legislatures tracks this every five years or so, just to look at the demographic breakdowns in state legislatures through our reporting, uncovered some other groups that also have started tracking this. But, you know, we had all, well, several of us had worked with the NCSL before on things. We kind of knew them. And so that was, when I got involved, at least that was our strategy that I kind of, you know, heard and then, and then kind of agreed and helped steer us to was, you know, going with this group that's, you know, essentially a uh, kind of trade group, if you want to call it that, for state legislatures and, you know, compiles information, you know, more broadly about them. So yeah, that was, that was our kind of process, I would say was to, you know, just look at these reports that they release again about every five years. And, you know, it was, it was really, I think, interesting to see, to be able to do that time series comparison, I think. 
Rainuka, how was the, you know, what was the approach to this story from a, a reporting standpoint? Did you wait and see what the data was going to tell you and then sort of told the story from that way? Or, you know, how'd you go about it? Sure. I was brought in after, um, I think after the data had already been compiled. And so I was, is sort of a great thing for a reporter, a dream thing for a reporter where I had all this data in front of me and you could look at all these trends and you could very easily zero in on where the focus should be. And I think that that was, that was super helpful in terms of starting out and figuring out because otherwise you're sort of looking at all 50 states and just trying to figure out, you know, where is there an interesting story and, you know, kind of where to zero in and just having the data really made it easy to say, okay, what are the states we should focus on? What should we look at? And then kind of help help do some reporting around the why. I think the data gave us a really good sense of what's going on. And then with the reporting, I tried to zero in on two big questions, which is, you know, why is it that we're seeing the things we're seeing, which I think in some states, there've been a lot of gains in minorities and women, but, you know, various a handful of states, but most states it's lagging behind. And then you try to understand the impact of that. You know, I think it's one thing to talk about, well, it's great to have this representation in state legislatures, but I also wanted to take a look at what does that mean for the types of bills that get passed. And so that really helped me focus my reporting to have that data in front of me. So just to add to that, I think that the other thing that really helped us was that as I was kind of pulling data, I very much was able to kind of bounce off of a couple of the editors who were involved in this just ideas to, to really arrive at the most important of the, the statistics. So NCSL, you know, in addition to collecting gender and uh, race ethnicity data, which is what we wound up primarily using in this, they also collect data as to the generations into which the legislators fit and certainly party, but also religion and education attainment status. And, you know, really being able to kind of narrow that and focus on what we thought were, you know, two of the more telling trends that's, you know, gender representation and then also race ethnicity in legislatures was really helpful in kind of focusing in on a couple of storylines that we could really, you know, report out. Angela, you know, as the reporting was coming in and, you know, once the data had come in, were you surprised by any of the results that you began to see? Well, I was not surprised to find that pretty much every, actually every state was um, underrepresented in terms of both women and people of color in the legislatures. I expected that to be the conclusion, but what was surprising was, I guess, how bad some places were. You know, some have nearly zero representation of people of color in 2020. That's really pretty shocking, even in states that aren't predominantly white. So that was surprising. The other thing that surprised me was that even in the states that have the most representative legislatures, Hawaii, for example, California, New Mexico, some of the top ones in terms of people of color, they all still underrepresent the state in terms of its population. So Hawaii's legislature, for example, is 71% people of color, given, of course, Native Hawaiians being the predominant part of the population there. But in the state, 78% of people, so seven percentage points there, are people of color. So even the most non-white legislature is still underrepresenting the population of the state. So definitely surprising on those fronts. In terms of women, I had seen a press release last year from the National Conference of State Legislatures saying that 
for the first time, about a third of legislators were going to be women after the 2020 elections. So a third, okay, I guess that's progress, but considering basically half the population is women, that's not exactly equitable. In the reporting, was there any conclusion as to maybe why this was happening? Yes, there were definitely conclusions as to why women and people of color are underrepresented. Rainu and her reporting partner, Nolan McCaskill, came to some very interesting conclusions as well as effects of this phenomenon. But in terms of reasons why, there's there's several. One is that legislative work in most states pays very poorly. So it tends to attract people who can either afford to leave other full-time jobs during legislative sessions or have other sources of income that they can rely on besides their small legislative salaries. So that means that people who need their salaries to support themselves and their families are much less likely to be able to take the time or take the pay cut to serve in a legislative role. There's also you know, less tangible barriers to entry. Like in any career, if you don't see people like yourself represented in those places, it can be harder to step up and run for office. And certainly with women, there's a lot of evidence that shows that women are more likely to run only when asked and recruited to run, whereas men are more likely to put themselves forward and, you know, think they can be candidates without someone having to convince them that they can do it. Marinuka, who were you talking to with your, to sort of add some a human face or a, a human understanding to the data that was coming in? I talked to state lawmakers. So in Nevada, I talked to a woman who is the Senate majority leader. So one of the things that stood out to me in the reporting was that I didn't know before I started the reporting was Nevada was and is the only state with a majority female legislature. And they now have a woman who's the state's first female Senate majority leader. So I talked to her. I talked to folks at other state legislatures just to ask them you know, what is it that got you to run? What were the hurdles that you faced? And these are the people who are often involved in trying to recruit others into office. And my colleague, Nolan McCaskill, who um, worked on the story with me, also, I think, spoke with a lot of state legislators, people who work in state government. The two of us also talked to groups that are trying to, trying to recruit women and minorities to office and people who are doing research on this as well. And so, you know, to just talk to them about like when you are trying to get people to run for office, because usually, um, as Angel said, the biggest hurdle is actually getting people to run for office. Once they run, women and minorities aren't penalized at the ballot. It's just really getting them to run and then fundraising are the two big, big hurdles. And so talking to some of those people about where their struggles are. One of the other interesting things that popped out in the reporting is is what happened in Michigan. And so, so a while ago, Michigan put in term limits because they thought that that would be a way to get more diversity in their state legislature by saying, okay, let's make sure that people can't, just can't run year after year after year, term after term after term. But what that ended up doing is that once women and minorities were in office, they couldn't stay in office. And it was just so hard to sort of recruit a new group of women and minorities each time that they found that term limits actually ended up after a couple of election cycles or a few election cycles, it backfired. And some of the groups that pushed to get term limits in place in Michigan years ago, many years ago, are now saying not that they want to get rid of term limits, but that they maybe want to extend them a little bit to try to make sure that some of those gains can be preserved. And I think that that's actually also really important because 
I think that it was really uh, smart for both of the reporters who were on this to focus, you know, not just on the states that that were seeing the progress. You know, Angela mentioned Nevada being now over 50% women in the legislature. Arizona had a double-digit gain in the number of, in the percent, I should say, of non-white legislators from 2015 to 2020. But it was important to note, as we did in the story, that for those gains, I think eight states got, you know, pronouncedly higher in terms of percent of non-white legislators. That was eight states got better, but seven got worse by that same kind of metric. And so I think, you know, definitely focusing on both sides of the coin was was really important here. Looking at the project, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty strong. It says a lot of really interesting things. Angela, what what do you see? What other types of projects are you guys are going to be focusing on in the in the coming months? There's so much to do, and we have a, a wonderful data team that works with our reporting teams all around the newsroom. So we're very lucky at Politico to have the resources that we have. I think one of the areas, as has been in the news the last couple of weeks, is the AAPI community looking at representation or lack thereof there. Obviously, we already have the data for state legislatures from this project, so there's probably more to pull out there. But it's obviously the AAPI community is broad and diverse and you know, not, not one one people in the country, but it is a demographic group that has for sure been underrepresented in terms of elected office in many states and that has not had the same political power that certain other demographic groups have. So given the violence that we've seen towards people from those communities that's been escalating across the country, I think that's a very important place for us to keep digging in. To get back to the to the reporting and to the data, you know, Rinuka, how did you integrate the data into your story? Like I said, I think we we ended up trying to put context around it, and just you know, we didn't want to necessarily write through the stuff that could be told visually, and so I think we thought a little bit about okay, well, what's what can be told visually, and then what can be told with words, and and kind of went back and forth a few times, I think, with Alan's team on on that and trying to figure out where it makes sense to have certain graphics, where it makes sense to to kind of just, you know, people look at images and images can be much stronger than sort of reading percentages in a sentence. I always feel like people gloss over (laughs) numbers in a sentence. Um, But like when you're looking at a graph or you're looking at a graphic or an image, I think those sorts of things stand out a lot when you're looking overall. I agree. I thought that the the data visualizations on this were, were particularly strong. You know, Alan, can you sort of talk about the different ones? I know there's one that's a map, but then there's one that's kind of sort of like dials and and tables. What went into designing those? We have a team, you know, that, that has you know, a number of people with, with different strengths and skills. Beatrice Jen was the main designer on this. You know, we start out a project like this, and we really try to think of what the best way to kind of visualize the information will be, certainly. But... Every time that we try to add visuals to a story like this that we're involved with from the beginning, we really try to kind of work down to the most almost kind of visceral implementation of of like just how to show this data. And so we go through a pretty lengthy kind of design development process where we're in touch with editors both on our team and on the kind of visual side, and then also on the the content side. So I would say that the final product probably represents five or six 
big kind of iterations that we would just get feedback on and then go back to the drawing board a little bit. And that continued very much when uh, Renu and Nolan came on and actually started the reporting. And, you know, we would be in a draft seeing what their copy would look like and really then trying to kind of square that with the graphics that we had. And then also see if there were any kind of additional graphics that we needed or changes to the, the ones that we had made. The one graphic that I thought you, you were talking about the impact. I mean, obviously there's, there's the one where you have the map and you show that what the different, the numbers are the different map, but where you're, you have a graph where one, you're, you're sort of laying the, the percentages of uh, non-white representatives in state legislatures on, on a line over uh, percentages. And then there's another one where you, which I particularly like where you sort of divide it between uh, gender divide and how, you know, how it divides between party. And you see very clearly that one party, you know, is more bringing in more diverse candidates than others. And so, you know, that sort of gives you a great, you know, visual story of something that's in your, your reporting that's really kind of powerful and, and makes it very clear just by just even skimming the document. And I'll just say that one of the nice things about the way that we worked with editors and then with the, the reporters on this those two charts that you mentioned, the first, the kind of looking at the percent of state population versus state legislature membership that was non-white. And then that second one of, you know, looking at what party has more seats in a given state legislature, and then kind of contrasting that with the percent of women serving the legislature. Those mm -hmm. were both charts that we knew that we wanted to have, not just in, in the final piece, but really as reporting tools. So we had early versions of these that we had, in addition to just like spreadsheets of analysis, we also shared early versions of these with Renu and Nolan when they came in so that they could use these as reporting tools for the actual, you know, to see the actual trends and, and kind of start on them. And the other data visualization that you have towards the bottom of the article, the, I don't know what you call them, dials or whatever, <laughs> uh, just showing the percentage, how each state compares for non-white representatives and women in, in the state legislature. I like that as well. It's sort of a different, and you can just slide by it and see which states are doing better and which ones are doing worse. And that's kind of the example. We internally call that the bloom and onion chart. <laughs> and, you know, initially we had, we had talked about doing kind of more of a traditional display like you see in, in different places where you see like individual seats, right, that make this half circle. But, you know, even when we lost that level of detail, it was still the Bloom and Onion chart. But, you know, that's, that's another one where the simplicity of it is a little deceptive in terms of all of the ideation that went into it. You know, the, the lines that we have and the different color shading for whether, you know, the percent of non-white or women in state legislature increased or decreased. You know, all of those kind of design elements were things that I think were I wouldn't say painstaking, but, you know, definitely very iterative. You know, again, there's probably 10 versions of this out there with, you know, well, what if we just color code it? Well, what if we don't have that dotted line that shows where, where the state was in 2015? So, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is something that really, I think, in our process, we're always trying to simplify what we're showing and, and really, you know, still make it contextual, still make it kind of easily understandable. And we're very much we very much prioritize, you know, building something that isn't going to take a ton of trips back and forth from like the graphic to the key above, to the graphic, to the key above to understand, you know, we really want it to be instantly kind of scannable, but 
we also want it to be as minimalist as we can get away with. I think you strike a really great balance in here because there, there's a lot of information in each of them, but they're not, it's not overwhelming. You don't feel like you're having to figure out what, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? But they also, you know, they illustrate a, a point in the story as well so that, you know, it sort of enriches the whole process. Just to stray into the weeds for a moment, what program are you guys using to, or programs are you using to, to build these graphics? Everything that you would see on our pages is done with just either D3 or just kind of vanilla JavaScript and, and React. But in terms of the actual like sketching of things, we use Sketch on our team. And we've done that really since elections work last year to do everything from simple mock-ups of an individual component to a full page if needed. And so we have a, a good workflow for designing those, sharing them with our team, and then sharing them outside our team with other stakeholders like the reporters and the editors. So Marinuka, tell me a little bit, I mean, you, you work on a project like this and when you, you do your reporting and you know, now we have this, this final project with, with all of these graphics to show off the data in it, but also the, the reporting that, that helps to tell the story. What, what do you feel like when you finish something like this? It's really fun because I think, you know, sometimes being a reporter can be a very lonely task and it's great to work on this project with a lot of other people and a lot of great minds and people with just such different skill sets and, and to see it all come together. I mean, it's a really great feeling. It looks amazing, I think to see it all put together. And I think it just gives it so much punch to have these graphics and to have these visualizations. And like Alan said, they are simple, which is their genius. <laughs> and <that> they <laughs> are easy to read, but that is, there's a lot of work that goes like good writing. There's a lot of work that goes into making something easy to understand. Yeah. I just, I think that the other bit from my perspective to this is it's really exciting to, you know, do these visuals, present them to everybody, have you know, a, a close to final version and then go in and read the text for the first time and just see, you know, obviously the level of care and skill that goes into the reporting, but also just like how well it kind of can align with what we have done in the, in the graphics. And I think that that's something that excites everyone on kind of my team is, is, you know, doing something that feels very tightly cohesive, you know, and is as exciting to us to read the, the copy for the first time as I think it is for the, reporters hopefully to see the final versions of the charts for the first time. So what are you going to be working on next? I don't have another project like this next. I'm thinking about kind of my next projects now. I um, I helm our daily newsletter, Politico Nightly, and so that keeps me pretty busy. I do a lot of reporting on the pandemic and what it all means, but I'm definitely excited to, um, to work on another project like this again. And I'm also, like I said, looking at some things with Texas politics, but yeah, I've got a lot of like smaller projects in the works right now. Cool. How about you, Alan? Are you you have anything on the horizon that you you're gonna you put your skills toward? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess first I'll say that the drumbeat of elections never totally fades. We have <laughs> yes. at least five special congressional elections this year, and so that's going to be just kind of continued effort to try and you know always have really good and deeply contextual results pages out for those races. But the other thing that's definitely picking up now is our talks around redistricting. And oh, wow. you know, this is going to be just a huge story, especially given the condensed timetable for many states because of you know some census and COVID-related delays. So yeah, th that's something that we are, are starting to talk through what we want to do. And, and I think going to try to uh, produce some interesting content around that, both in terms of reporting and 
data analysis, and then also, you know, the interactive kind of designing side. It'll be interesting to see maybe in a year or so, I don't even know if we're gonna have to wait longer, or maybe we'll, we'll get it sooner to seeing how the redistricting is going to yeah. uh, change or if it does change. I think more than half the states have some kind of statutory requirement right now that they have to have the lines drawn by the end of the year or, you know, by a certain date. So, you know, we'll see what happens with, uh, with action from state legislatures, but, you know, we could be in a real kind of traffic jam situation in November, December with all of these states finalizing their, their maps. Well, that's all more work for us, right? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Thank you for uh, being on the podcast. It's been great to be here. What a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thank Thank you. you for having us. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, google play and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found if you'd like to help us grow our podcast like and share our episodes on social media look for us on facebook instagram and twitter it takes a lot of people to create an episode of it's all journalism nicola grisco produced this episode amber healy wrote our web content nick capre wrote our theme music Emilio Brust helped with our booking steph thomas is our social media manager and i'm your host michael o'connell thanks for listening